Good evening. My name is Jonathan Queenan, and you're listening to the Queenan Report on Toll Radio. In today's episode, I'll be taking a look at two movies that address both current and past issues in Native society. Taylor Sheridan's Wind River and Jeff Barnaby's Rhymes for Young Ghouls. I want to briefly take a look at each issue the film addresses and how their intended audience is meant to react. I also want to pay particular attention to how both natives and non-natives are portrayed in each story and how the perspective each story is told from affects the way the audience perceives it. Let's begin by briefly discussing the respective issues the movies take on. Taylor Sheridan's Wind River takes a deep, dramatic dive into an investigation of the disappearance of a young Native woman living on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. This film has three main issues that it addresses. 1. The Disappearances of Native Women According to an article written by Aileen Brown, over 2,500 women have disappeared since 1900, and the list is nowhere near complete, as the issue continues to affect many Native communities. 2. The physical, sexual, and emotional violence against Native women. According to that same article by Brown, quote, The results of the 2010 National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey showed that 84% of Indigenous women had experienced violence in their life, and 56% had experienced sexual violence, end quote. 3. The problematic process behind investigations of these disappearances, including jurisdiction disputes and a shortage of investigators. Oftentimes, disputes over legal jurisdiction happen between tribal police, state police, local police, federal agents, the list goes on. These three issues are the primary focus for Sheridan's film. As for Rhymes for Young Ghouls, directed by Jeff Barnaby, the story tells of a revenge-seeking native teenage drug dealer fighting for freedom from a cruel, unforgiving Indian agent attempting to send her to a residential school. The film pays particular attention to the dreadful residential schools of the mid to late 1900s in Canada. Residential schools, in the words of Aaron Hansen, were, quote, an extensive school system set up by the Canadian government and administered by churches that had a nominal objective of educating Aboriginal children. Now, this definition sounds relatively harmless, but these schools were more than just places to learn. Not only did the schools strip Indigenous children from their homes, they stripped them of their cultural identity, essentially whitewashing Native children down to nothing. Severe sexual, physical, and psychological abuse constantly took place in these schools. To put it simply, these were less schools than they were concentration camps. According to Hansen, quote, In 1907, 24% of previously healthy Aboriginal children across Canada were dying in residential schools. In Rhymes for Young Ghouls, Barnaby pays particular attention to these issues, including the way these schools affected natives who were not in them. First, we have to establish who the movie wants its audience to be. Both filmmakers wanted to address an issue pervading Native society, but the audiences for both seem to be different. It's clear that Wind River is mostly a Hollywood action drama flick meant to be mass-distributed across the United States, as familiar faces such as Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen share the spotlight. Sheridan's audience seems to particularly be non-Native American people who are unaware of the problems that residents of reservations face. In fact, I would argue that the film isn't meant for Native people at all, but that's an argument for later. 
Barnaby's film is less of a Hollywood film with a native heavy cast that isn't immediately recognizable and a bit lower of a budget. In this sense, it could be argued that the movie is meant for anyone watching, native or not. In an interview with Muskrat Magazine, Barney gives advice to native filmmakers, stating, quote, Don't feel obligated to have your story told just because you're a First Nations artist. Feel like you need to make good stories first, and the idea that you are native will translate via your art form, end quote. Essentially, Barnaby's film aims more at telling a story than eliciting a specific response from his audience, while Sheridan's story attempts to earn a more sympathetic reaction from white America. Let me back those statements up with a quick summary of how each filmmaker addresses their issue. Sheridan's intent behind the movie is very explicitly stated at the end, right before the credits roll. On the screen, here are the lines that appear. Quote, While missing person statistics are compiled for every other demographic, none exist for Native American women. No one knows how many are missing. It can be reasonably assumed that most Native people already know about the continuing disappearances of Native women, as it affects the group that they are part of. It is evident, then, that Sheridan wanted this film to be seen by those unaware of the issue entirely, and more importantly, by those with the power to do something about it. In this regard, I think Sheridan's attempt is admirable, but the quote has other functions that I'll talk about in a bit. Rhymes for Young Ghouls does not have an explicit message to it like Sheridan's. Though the movie does address the topic of residential schools, the movie is set in 1976, and residential schools are no longer existent in present day. The film focuses more on character development and the overcoming of personal roadblocks, which I'll dive into later. Overall, the residential school is indeed being addressed, but Barnaby doesn't necessarily want his audience to go and do something about it. Instead, the audience is merely expected to enjoy a good story told by Native people, and not just a story with Native people in it. Essentially, Barnaby aims to fill the gaps of the historical perspective. Keeping each director's motives in mind, I want to take a look at how Native people and non-Native people are portrayed in each film. First, let's focus on Wind River. We have six Native characters in the film that have a significant impact on the plot. Ben Shoyo, the tribal police chief, Natalie Hansen, the missing Native woman, Martin and Annie Hansen, her parents, Chip Hansen, her brother, and finally, Wilma Lambert, former wife of Corey Lambert, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent and friend of the Hansons. These six characters are indeed important to the plot, but the story doesn't primarily focus on their experiences. Even though the movie is about Native people's struggles, we only get brief peeks into their actual lives. The story focuses instead on two white knights that are trying to save the day, Corey Lambert and Jane Banner an FBI agent with almost no knowledge of the environment she's entering. As a whole, the portrayal of natives and non-natives in Wind River strongly continues the dying Indian motif across Hollywood films. The dying Indian motif is common in Hollywood films portraying Native Americans, though far more common in the early to mid-1900s. Essentially, this motif is a reinforcement of the idea that Native Americans are a group of the past, one that no longer exists as a contemporary coherent racial group. Those films portraying Native people in the early to mid-1900s were all from the perspectives of heroic white Americans in Manifest Destiny, who were essentially wiping out Native armies and people across the West. Back then, there was no such thing as the contemporary Native American in the eyes of Hollywood. According to Carol Gerster, author of Native Resistance to Hollywood's Persistence of Vision, quote, Mass media are tools that any dominant cultural group, in this case Euro-Americans, 
can use to perpetuate its own power, wealth, and status by viewing history from its own perspective and popularizing its own culture and interests as past and present ideals to which all other groups should aspire. I do not think that Wind River successfully avoids this motif. The story is told mainly from the perspective of two white Americans, though Sheridan primarily wants his audience to empathize with Jane Banner, the FBI agent. Jane's confusion as an outsider to the land and culture is reminiscent of the audience's experience who, chances are, have never been on a native reservation in the middle of Wyoming either. Almost everything that Jane learns about the land and about native culture comes not from native people themselves, rather from Corey Lambert, which I find ironically similar to how Taylor Sheridan is telling us a native story. Corey and Jane are both officers for the U.S. government, though they may be widely spread apart in terms of status. If we were to rewind to part of Gerster's words about how films that perpetuate this motif often tell stories from the perspective of Euro-Americans in positions of power and status, it's clear that Wind River falls under the umbrella. The natives in the film act less as developing characters and more as a tragic group of people just wallowing around in the reservation. In the final scene of the movie, Corey approaches Martin after the kidnappers slash murderers slash rapists were found and put to justice. Here's a brief moment from the scene when Corey first approaches and asks Martin why his face is painted. focus on here is the last one you just heard where Martin says about his death face quote I made it up because there's no one left to teach me this alone implies that there are no native people left on the reservation with cultural knowledge a large part of native culture is rooted in the land and it seems as though the only one who truly knows the land is Corey who isn't native the movie also makes it appear as though the fate of native children is inevitably doomed of the four native sons and daughters in the film, aging in range from young adult to adolescent, only one is safely living, that being Corey's half-native son. As for the other three, Corey's daughter Emily Lambert disappeared and was killed, Natalie Hansen disappeared and was killed in a similar fashion, and Chip Hansen, her brother, is a drug-addicted felon who Ben the police chief says is always looking forward to going to prison. Again, it's hard to deny that the dying Indian motif is strongly reinforced in this film, if we take into account the power dynamics of the film that I briefly mentioned earlier, you'll notice the only people doing the actual digging for clues and solving the mystery are all white, including Jane, Corey, the state police, the medical examiner, all except for one lone tribal police chief leading his faceless, nameless policeman who hardly have any jurisdiction once Jane shows up. Even the workers of the oil rig, the ones that kidnapped and murdered Natalie, appear to have far more power and motivation than any one of the natives in the film. While most of the natives in the film were all deeply saddened by the loss of Natalie, that seems to be their only function in the film, and this affects the way that the final quote is perceived at the end of the movie. If you remember earlier, I referenced the quote that came up at the end of the movie that Sheridan put in. While it may be true that the government indeed does not have a record of missing native woman, second section, nobody knows how many are missing, implies that there is nobody working towards fighting this injustice, and as we learned from Aileen Brown earlier, this is simply not true. 
An entire documentary entitled Finding Dawn also shows quite the opposite. The issue is, the way natives and non-natives are portrayed in this film, combined with the ending remark, gives off an unintentional yet powerful message that native people aren't doing anything about the issue, therefore making it less likely that anyone watching will either. Let's now move away from Wind River and on to our next film, Rhymes for Young Ghouls. The portrayal of natives and non-natives in this film is almost paradoxical to Sheridan's film, as natives are the primary focus of the story, and the portrayal seems much more informed than Wind River, obviously so, because Jeff Barnaby is native himself. Wind River's blending of native people into one large mass of tragedy is flipped on its head in rhymes, as each character is portrayed less as part of a collective group of struggling people, and more as individual characters with different motivations. These differences lie in how the characters deal with trauma and loss, and how they cope with the residential school's constant shadow. The first scene of the movie shows a horrific incident in which while young Ayla's drunk parents, Joseph and Anna, get into a car and accidentally kill a young boy assumed to be Ayla's younger brother Tyler. This drives Anna to commit suicide, while Joseph takes the blame and is sent off to jail, leaving Ayla with her uncle Burner. We then fast forward to teenage Ayla, who deals drugs with her two friends and Uncle Burner in order to pay off the residential school and thus keeping her out of it. Ayla's father Joseph returns from prison and his relationship with his daughter is immediately tainted as he disapproves of Ayla's involvement with drugs. This is where I see a significant difference in the way Wind River portrays natives versus the way Rhymes does. As I mentioned, Wind River sort of blends the natives of the film into one tragic group who has seemingly given up. On the other hand, Ayla and her friends continue to work hard to fight off the evil Popper, who is the leader of the residential school. Trauma and loss aren't simply a tool for sympathy in this movie. There are motivations for the affected characters to fight back and overcome their obstacles. Though everyone is affected by trauma and loss, nobody seems to be wallowing in their own tears. As I mentioned, in Wind River, the death face was something completely made up by Martin, reinforcing the notion that Indian tradition was long gone. On the other hand, cultural beliefs and rhymes are portrayed as continuing traditions and not lost history. There's a flashback scene in which Ayla's mother, Anna, is teaching Ayla how to paint a headdress. Take a listen. I thought you said Micmac didn't wear the headdresses. No, they don't. Then why are you making me put one on him? I don't think these clowns are worth them. Yeah, I didn't. Keep an eye on what you're doing. Then use the brush for the detail work. Okay, then how did you get one? Because, well, there's some people who think it looks powerful. Why don't they think that? Because they're dumbasses. <laughs> this scene portrays indigenous people as knowledgeable of their own culture. The fact that Anna and Ayla both knew that most Indians didn't wear headdresses implies that they know more about their cultural identity, even with the residential school looming over both of their memories. The fact that Ayla and Anna are preserving their cultural identity through their art shows that their culture is alive and well. Ayla often has moments where she sees her mother appear after she has died, which can be pegged both as a coping mechanism and as a cultural reference. There's even a scene in which Gizagu, hope I pronounced that right, mentions his involvement in World War II thus adding a bit of historical perspective. Overall, the movie avoids portraying Indians as a dying race, 
instead focuses on the preservation of tradition and art. As for the portrayal of non-natives, we get mostly characters with evil intentions, such as Popper, the cruel and unforgiving Indian agent. Popper's character is one the audience is meant to hate, with his cruelty towards Ayla and her family, and his mistreatment of the native boys residing in his school. Though the antagonists of Wind River are also meant to be hated, there's a slight indication that, in the end, they were still the winners, even though they met an unfortunate demise, because everyone's still upset and Natalie and Emily are still gone. This implication also appears in Rhymes, because Joseph is again hauled off to jail for the murder of Popper, and Ayla's mother is still no longer alive. In this way, I see a small but important parallel with the way the directors treat trauma and loss, that, in the words of Barnaby, how do you go through these atrocities and pretend that we are all well-adjusted? Though there is that small parallel, these two movies differ in the way they address their respective issues, even if the intentions were well-meant. Wind River does a great job in bringing awareness to the disappearances of native women, but it fails to tell a native story, which in many ways was intentional. On the other hand, Rhymes for Young Ghouls brings awareness to a multitude of native issues residential schools, alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide, sexual abuse, all while keeping it from the perspective of Aboriginal people involved. Though I thoroughly enjoy both films, I wish Wind River would have individualized the native characters a bit more instead of only utilizing them as hopeless beings. I'm your host, Johnny Queenan, and thanks for listening to the Queenan Report on Toll Radio. See you next week when we discuss how John Ford is a real turd. <laughs>